This podcast is brought to you by OnTrack Studio. Welcome back to Mind Your Head. In this episode, we speak to Mitchell Leffers, who was an army veteran that served in Afghanistan as a combat engineer. Mitchell goes into the detail about losing his father at a young age, the PTSD he suffered post-deployment, and being told by doctors that he has almost a 0% chance of ever having children. Despite these challenges and setbacks, Mitch is one of the most positive, inspiring, and resilient people I know. Also, just a heads up, this episode contains personal stories of war, suicide, and mental health. Mitchell Leffers. Elliot Hagen. Welcome to Mind Your Head. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming on. I know this is uh, really outside your comfort zone. So, yeah, yeah, I want to say a big thank you for for coming on and having a chat. We met, well, my memory of where we met was final year of year 12 at Mountain Creek. Yeah. Spanish class? Spanish? I think it was Spanish or it was Japanese. (laughs) I definitely don't. I might have been Japanese. (laughs) Yeah, because I remember you coming in with your curly blonde hair and I was the class clown. I was the one telling the jokes and then you came in. And took all the attention away. Yeah, mate. And just everyone thought you were the funniest <laughs> thing ever. Yeah. And that was Monday. And then come the Wednesday, I was like, oh, he's actually pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> Were you just laughing at me the yeah. first time? Yeah. No, I was like more like, oh, he's not even that funny. Yeah. And then the Wednesday came, I was like, oh, he's actually, yeah, he's actually pretty funny. And yeah. then come the Friday, I remember somehow where we went from the Monday to the Friday, I'm you're doubling me on your handlebars, yeah. riding back to yeah. your house in Moorabah. Yeah, yeah. everyone and I was, comes back to the yeah, yeah, and I was just thinking, how that's so funny in the space of a week. Uh, I went from like your enemy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably too far. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then all of a sudden, in the end of the week, we were, I think we were just best friends, and I think that's just continued on for yeah. the last... 15 years and I remember like meeting all your family and your sister Alex and your mum die and uh, I realised obviously early on that your father wasn't around. Yeah, we never really talked about it or you never really said too much until we got a little bit older and yeah, can you can you tell me a little bit about your dad and what you remember of all him? Alright, so I was 11 or 12, I was in year 6 and a few years before that he got diagnosed with a motor neuron disease which was slowly turning him into a vegetable. We last saw him, we went to Sydney. My sister and I, we saw him. He moved to Sydney. We're up here. Uh, He moved to Sydney to live with his brother and then my sister and I went down there and saw him. A few months later, mum just didn't wake us up for school and just told us that he he died. Mm. I actually... (laughs) It's pretty hard for me to talk about, sorry. I only found out... uh, Fuck... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Straight into it, eh? Uh, only, only found out a few years ago that he actually took his life. <laughs> Shit. So, I don't talk about it often. So, yeah, he, uh, he took all his medication at once and didn't wake up, which I have no grudge with him about. Yeah. If I was going to turn into a vegetable, I'd probably, you know, we yeah. all say that at some point. So, yeah. But, yeah, I... He was athletic, played a lot of sport, used to take us to sport, golf, tennis, rugby, everything. So he'd influence us to do that. Loved wrestling, loved watching the yoga girls at 5.30am. <laughs> <laughs> I'd come out and he'd be sitting on the couch. I'm like, what are you watching this for? 
Yeah. Yeah. Right, Mix, you remember it? Now, Before- now you understand. Yeah. <laughs> now I understand. <laughs> Apparently, uh, I was too young to know like the social side of it and understand everything about my dad. But yeah. from what I understand, he, he loved to travel, bit of an entrepreneur, mm. um, very social. Uh, used to, I've spoken to his, his best mate. Whenever I run into him, it like pretty much instantly brings me to tears. It's like I see my dad, just the way he talks. It's weird. Mm. My sister gets the same. And yeah, he, he tells us stories and stuff. How they used to ride around Sydney and no helmets on on their motorbikes, smoking a pack of smokes. Barefoot. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah. yeah, from yeah. from what I can hear, there's some good stories and obviously miss him a lot. And there's a lot of shadows there i don't know what's going on so so how old were you when he when he passed uh i was 11 or 12 i can't yeah. quite remember yeah. yeah and and sort of looking back on it now how much of effect did that have on you at that age were you in terms of like say going to school your behavior could you could you process it at that age no no i don't think so yeah so had i think about two weeks off flew down to sydney went to the funeral came back and um yeah i I remember a good friend was in my class and she was i remember her ask like saying to me that i'm surprised you're back at school so early and i was like well what else am i going to do sort of thing Mm. so but i don't think i was at an emotional intelligence at that age to deal with it but it definitely brought on other stresses i then got childhood epilepsy uh which they believe was brought on from the stress of losing my dad because that was i think a year within a year later and then i was on medication for that and uh it was sort of i feel like i was too young to understand everything and i just sort of kicked on with it didn't didn't talk to anyone about it didn't talk to mum about it from what i can remember i just yeah just bottled it up straight away and even to now, you can see I struggle talking about it. So. Yeah. Were you able to, I guess, grieve or express your emotions a bit later in life, or yeah, um, about about the the passing? Yeah. Yeah, I I rarely talk about him because mm. I'd get very emotional mm. um, just straight away. And um, it wasn't until I was joining the army and I had to see a psychologist, and they asked me about him, and I literally broke down, like mm. so intense, and I was like. I walked out and I was like, holy fuck, well, I've just fucked that. <laughs> I was like, and, and I've got demons I didn't know I had. <laughs> was this the pre-enlisting to yeah, the army? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And I like, I was a wreck. So before then, you, you didn't think... Yeah, I, I, just, I just wouldn't talk about yeah, it yeah, at all. Yeah. At all. Just would not talk mm. about it. I, I could hear people talking about him, but could not talk about him myself. So. Did you, do you think it, I guess it matured you at a, a young age? I definitely think into my like mid middle to late teens it did mm. early on when i got epilepsy i was on uh, medication they were trying to juggle what medication i should have to stop the fits but not have the side effects of the medication so actually that period between like year seven through to like in year eight or something is the period there where i was on quite strong medication mum said i was bouncing off the walls i don't actually remember much of that mm. It's it's quite a blur and it's a bit weird, I think, about it. So, yeah, it wasn't until I was later in life that I started maturing from that whole thing. I started to get the urge that I wanted to be a father from a young age and I started to feel a responsibility for my, my mum in particular. 
Um, she's been through a few medical surgeries with her hips and stuff, so a little bit with my sister, but she's very independent. She's yeah. Because that was one of my questions: was like, did you feel like you you needed to step up f- to be the father role of the family, or I think yeah, later later, later on yeah. yeah, when I was yeah. young, I was a baby, so yeah, yeah, but la- uh, yeah, sort late, of later on, later you know. on, yeah, and I'm still I still like to help mum now, and mm. yeah, so not as much as you would normally expect a father to be, but mm. yeah, I did in a way like you sort of take on a little bit of responsibility naturally. I think just being the only male in the house, but. Yeah. Did it change your outlook in life at all? Yeah, I think as I touched on before, mm. I think it it has shaped uh the way that I look at being a father myself and I think it has encouraged me to want to become a father and be a good father because he was a great father. Mm. And I know what it's like to not have that and I just that's all I want to put my attention into. Yeah. I want to be that. So yeah. Yeah. And how how do you think it affected your mum and your sister? Is it something you guys talked about? No, not really. Not really. Like yeah. even you asking me I I I wouldn't be able to answer for my sister. I mm. think for my mum just she would have felt a lot of responsibility now being a single mum doing it all herself. Yeah. Got a mortgage. I think at one point there she worked two jobs for many years and Paying for school, taking us to sport, mm. taking even friends to sport, and like, yeah, she was she was doing it all, and she did a good job. So, yeah. and did you, I think you mentioned before, you didn't re- um, receive any counselling. No, no, no. Um, I actually got sorry, I forgot to mention. After <laughs> I came off that strong medication, I then slipped into pretty severe anxiety at school, and I was scared shitless of breaking a bone. Or doing something. Like, I was scared. I would not go to school. I'd get to the bus stop. I'd walk back home. And then mum would have to convince me that nothing would go wrong at school. And it got to the point where she actually went and took me to a psychologist in Budgerham Private. And this was probably, I don't know, early 2000s. And, yeah, he he diagnosed me with anxiety, I think. Um, and I had some sit-downs with teachers. Like, I was so scared of teachers. I just, yeah... I think that whole losing my dad and then getting epilepsy, then getting anxiety, it just, it was a bit of a nightmare. Yeah. Um, Where do you think the fear came from? Like fearing to get hurt? Were you trying to. I don't know. I I can't work it out, but I think it might have all been linked in. Um, It did eventually go. Mm. By the time I was at Mountain Creek and I met you, it was gone. Mm. So I don't know. I really, I can't tell you. So I just had to get through it. And the ep- epilepsy, that's still with you today? No, no, no. I had to get that cleared. So it was childhood yep. epilepsy. Yep. So I had to do, I had to come off medication. So you go cold turkey, I think, in year nine. So it was like three or f- three years, I think. And they just cold turkey me off the medication and then no no, f- no seizures. Yeah. So then they were like, okay, it's gone. And then obviously with joining the army, uh, I had to go through some pretty intense yeah. brain scans and Testing and sleep yeah. deprivation to make sure I would yeah. have a seizure. And this might be a bit of a tough question to answer, but do you think the passing of your father changed your direction in life? Yeah, I still think about that today. You do? Yeah, often. Often I think about if my dad was here, what? How would that influence what I'm? The decisions I'm making, career-wise, relationship, house, you know, like everything. Mm. Yeah, it, it it plays in my mind a lot, and it and I feel like I'm missing out on 
that aspect of having that other influence of my dad there. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I I don't know how to answer that and say how it would be different because, yeah, he's mm. not here. Mm. And um, But I, I do often think that. There's yeah. times when I face a difficult decision that we all face and I go, I wish I just had him to just talk to about life experience. So. Yeah. What sort of made you head into... The military, I mean, we fast forward, we, yeah. finish, we finish school, we all graduate. I did a gap year in the army. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually tried to go with you guys. Oh, is that how it happened? Yeah, because yeah. you two were going and I was like, you and Ben were going and I was like, oh, I want to jump in. But then I, they made me jump through every bloody hoop yeah, yeah. with the epilepsy. So mm. it took me like nearly 12 months to get all the mm. clearance. So what was the desire there to... I didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah, I was in the same boat. Yeah. Sunshine Coast was a bit different then. Work was not as easy to get. I think getting a trade was considered quite hard unless you knew someone. And I just wanted to set myself up and didn't know what to do. So I just saw I could make a bit of money there, could make a career, could go away a bit and, you know, shape myself into a man. Like I felt like I'd I'd grown up with my mum and my sister in a female house. I wanted to build myself as the man that I am a bit. So I just sort of wanted... I'm, I'm always seem to throw myself in the deep end. And <laughs> that's what I did. Yeah, and I, I just thought, well, if I'm not going to do anything else, I'll, I'll just go do that and see where it takes me. Yeah, and it, and it kind of feels like there's no better place to gain life experience nah, and, yeah. and to grow yeah, than well, the military. I remember, like, I was 17 when I went in. Mm, and yeah. I remember um, getting thrust into the man world pretty pretty early, and I got nurtured like when I was growing up. Yeah. And I remember because um, you're underage, you needed your parents' permission if you wanted to leave. So, yeah. I, so as I got on the bus, yeah, yeah, that's right. Dad was like, "Oh, if you call me wanting out, I want to tell you to go fuck yourself." <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, I'll see you in a year. He's probably tougher than the army, mate. Yeah. <laughs> and he just chucked me on and said, if you call me, I'm going to hang up on you. Yeah, he knows what good so, will do. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. He knew what it, what yeah. it, what I needed to do and how much I was going to get out of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I think about it, it could have been different because I signed up for the gap year as well. Yeah. Because it took so long. Mm. I ended up doing the four years. Four years, up, yeah, yeah. Which changed the job role and where I ended up all together. So what did you, what did you go in the army as? Combat engineer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, explain what, what exactly uh, that is. That's like mine clearance, building temporary bridges, oh, anti-tank stuff, like booby trapping and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I picked it because I always wanted to trade. I always wanted to learn how to use tools I'd never been taught. So combat engineer could transfer to one of the trades. Uh, without changing and going back through the combat engineer training. So if you were a rifleman and you wanted to become an electrician, you'd have to go through the combat engineering training to then become an yep. electrician, yep. where I'd already done that. That yep. was my idea behind it. Yeah. So it could have been an easily transition into, <laughs> yeah. a, into a trade. Yeah, yeah, it was the easiest transition. Was that your trade. long-term plan, I guess, was to eventually get a trade? Or yeah. Were you, yeah, yeah, it was. It was an idea that I had beforehand mm. and then forgot about once I got in. Yeah. Because... <laughs> <laughs> And then didn't come, it didn't pop back up again until about three and a half years later. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, I'm glad I made that decision back then. So, mm. so when you, when you joined, I, I know it was, you talked about it was just a bit of a venture for you and you wanted to grow. Yeah. When did, 
I guess the reality of going to war set in with you and yeah. were you is that something that you wanted to do? No, I had no idea. Yeah. I, it it was probably something that I wouldn't have thought I would ever do. Yeah. I joined just for those reasons I explained before, but I got posted to after my training, uh I got posted to Brisbane. Shortly after that they told us that we'd be heading off uh, to Afghanistan in about a year and a half and we were to start intense training doing mine clearance. So then we just started training non-stop. So pretty much all the other job roles within a combat engineer got pushed to the side and I just learnt how to sweep with, my, um, with a mine metal detector. <laughs> yeah. Do you reckon you were mentally ready? Yeah. I guess you can never really yeah, tell until I, you get over there. I, I don't yeah. think you can tell. Mm. Um, I think if I was in the mental position and knowledge that I am now at maturity, I probably would not be ready. Mm. But I was 20, 21. I was full of heart. Mm. I was a young 20-year-old. A bit naive and yeah, just like... like just wanting to prove yourself and yeah. wanting to do it with your mates and not wanting to be a coward or anything like that. I just, yeah. Mm. I, just, I sort of just jumped at the opportunity. I knew what could be involved and whatnot and... Yeah. How, how long was your deployment going to be? Six months. Six months. Yeah, one day short of six months. Yeah, right. So they don't have to pay for me to go have a two-week break in, in the middle. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. That's what I, that's what I heard. So, <laughs> fucking, yeah. so you, get, you, you get told you're going away to war for six months, or just a day less than six months. Yeah. And all the while you've got uh, a wife. You were, you got married? No. No, you got married. After. I got I got married afterwards. after. Yes. So you had a, you had a partner at home. Yeah, 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 yeah. We we were we were a serious relationship. So, yeah. Um. Yeah. I had a partner at home and long distance. Just yeah. hard. Just hard all well, around. What do you What do you talk about? Yeah. Uh, we we had many people who'd done overseas deployments before and had told us, "Don't ring every day." Oh really? Yeah. yeah. Just do it every like. Give, like, it, give it a give bit it, of time. Give yeah. it four days. You're just ringing them and you're just you're talking about nothing. Mm. You're, you're pissing them off and you're going to be ringing them at 3 a.m. or something. Yeah. So ring, build up some things to talk about over a few days and call them. And I think I think that was a good bit of advice. Yeah. So for everyone who sees war on TV <clears throat> or reads about it or mm. for people that's never been in the military, can you describe what it was like over in Afghanistan? I think uh, Afghanistan, when I was there, was very guerrilla warlike. So, mm. not as much fighting, uh, like gunfights. It was a lot of IEDs, improvised explosive devices, and just being sneaky. Mm. Um, it's a war-torn country. You you see stuff everywhere. It's um, you got pe- it's a lot of corruption. You've got people just trying to survive. You've got um, the Taliban trying to stop schools and the western influence and um even like stop farming and stuff like that in some areas and um yeah they'll they'll tell the kids to that they can't go to school because they've put ieds in the school or and they just don't want that influence over there and it's compared to the movies from what i saw um movies exaggerate a lot but like everyone's trips different so yeah it's it's not like for for us it wasn't like every day was action we really had a f- like pretty much a month or two there where it was pretty it was intense for my job role as finding ids but yeah you have good days you have bad days yeah 
And I'd say you have mostly good days. Yeah. I asked you earlier, just were you, do you think you were mentally ready? And you said you, you don't really know until you get over there. And was there a, a moment when you got over there that it, that it really sunk in with you that you were like, oh, fuck, yeah. I'm in a... Yeah. <laughs> we go to the main base and that's quite safe. It's very well protected and you've got missile defence systems and stuff. Then we got sent out to another area patrol base uh, like a week later and I think we'd been there for a, a few days and it was in the afternoon, the sun was setting and we'd just hear all this gunfire going on and I was like, what's going on? So we all jump up on this... I can't remember what they're called, just these walls that we've got surrounding the, the base, and we're watching this firefight, which apparently was between the Afghani army and the Afghani police, and, and then it goes it goes for about an hour, and I'm just sitting there. It's like I've got a bucket of popcorn watching them having a firefight, and because it's going into night time, they've got the trace around. Yeah, you can see, it lights you up. Can, you can yeah. see them lighting up, and they're just shooting each other, and you're like, is anyone dying? <laughs> But, like, we're, we're probably a couple of hundred metres away, but I was just like, this is surreal. Mm. Like, I'm just watching a gunfight right in front of me. And probably when I first got out to search, I was, yeah, my asshole was puckering. <laughs> I, was, I was shit scared. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my brick commander had been over before and he just looked so blasé and turns out he put us out to search in an area where he just thought there'd be nothing just to get us going. So. Just to build a bit of confidence. Yeah, you've got to build like, confidence because yeah, yeah. you do all this training, but yeah. when you get on the ground and you're like thinking, you start thinking about, well, if the, if you get a metal hit, but there's metal everywhere. Yeah, yeah, you've yeah. got any sort of metal. You've got batteries, yeah. you've got cans. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. So what, what were some of the things that you, you witnessed over there that I guess has forever changed you or shaped you? We got sent to an area called Kaziruskan. It, the area we had a lot of intel about no metal in these IEDs. So finding them without a metal detector or with a metal detector is impossible. It's You're pretty much just using your eyes, which are your best tool anyway, using your eyes. Previously, from what our knowledge was, there was an outlook, an outlook with bunkers on it, which the Afghani army used to control. They'd been taken over by Taliban and... Uh, we were conducting a mission to retake that outpost uh, and clear it because the Taliban weren't staying there, but they were. That was believed. The intel was believed that they had laced the area with IDs, and the operation was to do a clearance there. And we had reinforcements come in um, to help help with this operation. With when you don't have metal in the IED, you, the best way to find it and the best tool is a sniffer dog. They sniff the explosives, um, which is something that we, we really wanted to have with us in assistance, but due to us being quite far away and there's not, there was not a large supply of the sniffer dogs and the and their trainers we were not able to get one and the the mission pretty much had to go ahead and we were supposed to head out on a patrol to this outlook and another group of soldiers were supposed to satellite along on the other side of picture like a green valley hills on the side the outlook's over there one patrol goes up that side the other patrol goes up that side to the the outlook we were allocated to the side one. So if there was some sort of contact or they needed like 
firefight, they needed support, we'd be able to react and join in sort of thing. And um, pretty much within an hour of the patrol, the guys heading up to the hill found their first IED. When you find an IED, it's a pretty long process to get rid of it by blowing it up. So they they did a really good job, those engineers, and they, they cleared the first IED. And then I we were just chilling out and we had a lot we had a lot of people it was market day we had a lot of people walking into town and driving into town and whatnot and locals yeah, well, yeah locals locals, yeah, like yeah. locals so i'm talking hundreds mm. and they were everywhere so i felt quite safe because if there's people there the locals know where the taliban have put stuff and where where they're over there doing their search they found an id they've got no one there and we've got hundreds of people it's like... So you do get a bit of a gut feeling. Oh, yeah, you know. You, you know that... You know, yeah. And mm. we had the intel that that area had been... Yeah. And the locals know, and that's why they don't go over there, because they don't want to get blown up. So then, yeah, we're pretty much just following along the whole day in line with them. It's called satelliting. And um, then they found another IED, and then that took longer. And then we were um, about to head back in, because our job was done, and they were going to stay at the outpost for a few days, and work on clearing the top of it and we're like okay we'll start heading back and we're in the big armoured vehicle the Bushmaster and uh, I had the headset on at the back and I was starting to doze off kind of like this yeah it's kind of like this yeah. and I was like they're really comfy <laughs> well they're not but <laughs> when you're tired <laughs> when they you're are. tired yeah. they're comfy and they're nicely air conned and we hadn't had armoured vehicles for months so I was just enjoying it and yeah I was in there and I just hear this explosion and I look out the window, this little window, and I just see this puff of smoke, not a big one, and I was like, fuck, that's not good. Like, that was not planned for. And we're all, like, looking at each other going, fuck, what's going on? And then the I had the ear, the radio headset on, and then it was just mayhem. It just fucking... I wasn't over there, but I've never been in a situation like that and a, a bit of the normal radio communication politeness <laughs> everything goes out the window you're sort of just trying to do all you can uh one of our uh mates he'd yeah he stood on a mine and um an id and he'd blown up and he'd lost uh both his legs but um thanks to one of our other mates absolutely aced it and was able to get the tourniquets on which saved his life and due to where we were it was over an hour by helicopter back to the surgical the first surgical area operation room and they say with a major injury like that you've got the golden hour yeah thanks to which means you got an hour you've got an hour pretty much yeah that's what they reckon that's that's your guideline yeah and how long did it take it was an hour 15 yeah right um so they did such an amazing job everyone involved he survived obviously and he's absolutely smashing it he's been to multiple olympics won multiple gold medals kayaking and uh yeah i woke up for a few of them and yeah it's just good to see him just are you still in contact with him or no no no, we weren't majorly close you sort of you spend months with everyone but yeah yeah. So so were you able to process that what you saw what you witnessed what you heard at the time or I guess to to continue on with the mission, did you have to push those emotions to the side and, and focus on the yeah. on the job? Like, how did you deal with the fear, I guess? Yeah, that- well, the, my, my issue came in then was we got back after this 
and we're all a bit shaky. Like, back to base. Yeah, back yeah. to base. Yeah. So from that same patrol, and yeah. we're like, holy shit, what the fuck's going on? Mm. And you've got to think they've got all these other infantry out there, and I think two or three, of the, there's four engineers in a brick, I think two or three of them got in the helicopter and flown to the operation area. And so these other guys are stuck out there because you can't go anywhere without being an engineer in front of you searching for IED. So we got briefed, I think it was 9 o'clock at night, that we were going to head out there the next day. We were already shaken. Like, it's it's a scary thing to think about that you're now going to be going out there and trying to take over from what they've just been through. And it's it's sort of like throwing yourself in the deep end. And I remember... We were rolling around all night. I don't think any, I don't think one out of the four of us got much sleep. So we were, I think we were pretty nervous, and it it is scary. And I, I guess once we got going the next day, and we started heading out there, I had to. Um, I was so scared and shaken. I, I felt like I needed a dog to help me. I felt like, although I felt very confident in my job and my ability, I felt like I couldn't detect where an IED is if it hasn't got metal in it, apart unless it's obviously there. And that was playing on my mind a lot. And um, obviously the incident the day before was adding a lot of pressure. And I was so nervous that I was like, well, I've got to do this anyway. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm fucking going in. I've got to accept. I've got to accept the situation that I could die. And that's when I started in my brain on the way out there going, you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die. Okay, accept it, accept it. And it's like, it's this thing where I convinced myself that I was going to die and did it within like half an hour and also convinced myself that I was satisfied that I was going to die. And I think that fucked me up a bit. I think it allowed me to do to do the job, but it also killed my soul a bit, if that makes sense. So yeah. accepting the fact that you're going to die, did that calm you Yeah, it, so you could do your job? It allowed me to calm, yeah. which yeah. I thought was the safest option. And it, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it was, it was pretty scary. And that, like, you got, you got a job to do and you got guys out there and you got to do it. And um, we were the ones there to do it. So there's a few things that went on and I, I do feel a lot of guilt with the whole, how everything played out and... Um, yeah, on that day. Yeah, yeah, on that day, and yeah, so it was accepting that, and then we had to go up there, and we started clearing, and um, we we got up to the hill, sorry, and we decided that we would research everywhere that they had searched because we just didn't have a sniffer dog to do it. We didn't find anything when we were up there. We were going pretty slow, and then we we insisted that we have a dog, and the next group that came out, I think four days later, to replace us, they. Um, they brought the American dog with them who was at that base that we were at and I think he found five or six IEDs within an hour. Mm. And then that group that replaced us, they then found, I think, two more IEDs a few days after. With it. the dog? No, by oh, themselves. By themselves yeah. And then, like, in that same group that replaced us, two Afghani guys stepped on a mine and they got blown up. So the area was just... Riddled. Raised. It was riddled. So the area and that you walked... there was walk- no metal in it, so, yeah. like... We had a mine detector, which is ground penetration, but it's fucking hard to use. Mm. And it, and it, I can't remember how it works. Sends like a sonar thing down and bounces off like rock and sends through a certain sound. So you got to learn it. But like, if you have a big rock in the ground, it can throw it off. It's just a bit hard. So when you went up and patrolled the next day, mm. where 
one of your soldiers got blown up. You had to go that same route. Another another group went up that same route after you mm. with the dog, and they found six. Yeah, and then another Afghanis went up that same route and found two more. No, uh, that yeah. So not the Afghanis, other Australian. Oh, Australian. Yes, they found two more. Yeah. So do you think about that and go? I just walked this, and I didn't. I didn't find any, and they've just found eight after us. Yeah. Did, does yeah, luck? Well, did you feel like there's I think, a bit? I think two of them were found in that path on on the way up. Yeah, yeah. So it was pretty wide area probably about i can't remember maybe 100 meters wide so there were multiple tracks you could take in and i guess maybe we were lucky we lucky, didn't go yeah. over it maybe if we did go over it maybe we would have found it i don't know so but it was it was it was everywhere and, yeah and due to due to what happened they wanted to do they wanted to send more reinforcements mm. They wanted to do a huge clearance going the other way after we'd cleared this mountain, this overlook. Sadly, uh, we had an attack on three of our, on more than three of our soldiers, but three three guys died. Um, Afghani army guy, um, he yeah he shot them, and we lost three guys. And we this was I think a, a week later, maybe yeah, it's hard to remember. Mm. And so we got asked if we wanted to go to the ramp ceremony at the main base, mm. and uh, I think we, yeah, we said yes, we'd like to, we'd like to pay our respects. So they threw us in a black hawk chopper, and we went back to the main base, and we did the ramp ceremony and paid our respects, and then we were supposed to get it back on a black hawk and fly back out there and get on with it, and. Um, they said, oh, we're not flying you. And we're like, what's going on? And they, they, what they wanted to do was take heaps of people from the main base, more, re, more people and reinforce where we were and do another clearance operation. Mm. We didn't end up going on the Black Hawk. We ended up going on a convoy, uh, which went for a few days. And we were, we were heading back, and I sort of was just a passenger. And I had a lot of, and I was in with the another group of engineers, and they were asking me questions about where we're going. And I was filling them in, and and um, we were cruising. I was, I took a turn up top of the vehicle on the turret, just looking around. I remember getting into this this valley area, and I was like, "This is pretty fucking suspicious." So I started getting, you get a gut feeling. I couldn't see any locals around. the The way that the road had choked us into a point. It was extremely easy for us to be trapped there, being in vehicles. And I just had this weird feeling that something's going on. And anyway, we got a, we got probably another K into that, <clears throat> and it got a bit worse. And then we all stopped. And this convoy was led by the Afghani army, and we were to support them from behind them. And us being the engineer vehicle, we were the first in the first in the Australian packet. So we were right behind the Afghani army and we stopped and we're like, oh, I wonder why we stopped. And I sort of couldn't see the front vehicle. And we got word that apparently there's, they think there's something in the ground and we're like, okay. So I'm thinking, oh, my gut feeling might be right here. And then next second, fucking huge explosion, like massive. I was like, fucking hell. And I just, I was already looking out and just massive. And next thing you see is this, Dude's fucking body parts rolling down the hill, and I was like, "What the fuck's just happened?" And they're they're all running around crazy, and they're they're getting out the body bags, and um, I can't remember if it was one or two guys passed away, or the, anyway, they they were all pretty rattled, the Afghani army guys, because they just lost someone. So we pushed on, and then they found another one. We, we because it was taking so long, we decided to 
uh, some people decide to get out of the vehicle and sit around and like go out of border security and stuff and so just you know so they're not sitting in the vehicle all day and we have a bit better security in case there's a an ambush um and i was sitting in the back and the crew commander he goes oh left what's this and i was like what do you got and he's like i reckon there's something right in front of the vehicle i was like what so i jumped up there with him and i was like oh yeah Fucking what? And it was like five metres in front of us and it was a little divot in the ground. And I was like, that's that's pretty sus. We've already just found two. Mm. And you've got to think they found these two at the front of the convoy. We're like in the top third of the convoy. So we've got a few vehicles in front of us. And there was an Afghani dude walking past and he had a mine detector and, and like a little digging shovel. And I was like, hey, hey, have a dig, mate. And he's like... He's like, hey, and like just, you know, the usual, not, not much English. The broken and English. Yeah, yeah, and I'm like, like giving him the visual to have a dig. And I was like, be careful though. And like, he, yeah, he just, he dug it up a bit and we could see the yellow. And that's the Wipot containers that they used. We knew instantly, yeah, it was an IED and it was fucking like five metres in front of our vehicle. And multiple trucks had already driven over it, driven over it. And we're like, holy shit. So fucking here we are, like a convoy. Of like, I can't even remember how many, maybe like 20 vehicles. And we've got fucking IDs all between us. And we're like, fuck's going on here? So we've had to like then get out and people conducting searches to clear the vehicles left and right. We're backing up and we're going forward and trying to make sure that we're not going over anything that hasn't exploded just in case this time it does. And then by that time, I because I went through that, accepted my death, which was a weird thing for me. Um, I just felt so careless like i felt like i didn't give a shit like i i just felt like i gave no flying fuck if i died yeah because that was one of the questions i had was was what were the some of the things that you really struggled with being at war and i I was thinking maybe was it trying to keep that um communication with your partner back home and and even all your stories you're telling me now it it it's getting me on edge like i don't know how every time you went out to to do a patrol it would just freak me out knowing that most of the time, there's nothing you can really do yeah. that could keep you alive. Yeah, well, there, there was at times. Yeah, at times, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, like, like every step I take. Yeah, yeah. I, pr- I prided myself on it and I loved it. And, like, I used to check with the riflemen behind me and see if they were happy with my searching. Mm. And I used to, my brick commander taught me a way to, he said, just jump on it when you're done. Like, if you think you've found something and you actually you think you've got might have something you're digging you decide no it's not nothing don't step over it jump on it and he's like you'd prefer to die yourself than watch someone else jump on it Mm. or step on it and die i was like yeah that's fair chat so So you did that yeah i did that and and it was a great bit of advice because it gave me it gave me clarity that i would never have a situation where i'd fucked up or missed something and someone else would take the brunt of it. Mm. So it was always, if I was confident there was nothing there, I should be confident to jump on it. Yeah. And that's what I did. And, yeah, the <laughs> riflemen, they, they loved it. They were like, mate, I love that you jump on it. I was like, well, I'll keep doing it. And that was a bit of advice from my grip, my Brit commander from his trip. And I was, yeah, it was, it was good. So Was the army training, could they prepare you mentally? It's hard to say, like, before you left, but when you're yeah. over there... W- could they have prepared you mentally for what you were going to experience and witness? 
No. I well, there's think nothing so. that nothing that that they. I don't think so. I think yeah. everyone's journeys trip is different. Um, I also think every person's reaction to things are different. I feel a lot of guilt. That was a big issue for me. I don't think you could be prepared. Mm. I think we were well prepared, but I think it comes down to the person that they are. I think I'm quite empathetic. I, I'm, 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 I would say I'm a bit emotional and um, I overthink things a lot or I think deeply about things and just the person I am with the thing that I, the things that I experienced um, resulted in me becoming very obsessed. My thoughts were very obsessed with what was, what had happened on my return, and I became so obsessed with it and would start blaming myself and not seeking help or anything. Like that. So mm. it's yeah, it was a bit of a journey. How different was the letters before you left to the mm. to the letters that returned home? Very different. Um, I didn't feel different initially. I felt like I had been through a lot of a life experience by the time I was 21. I was like, yeah. But then as time went on, months, I would think about things nonstop, obsess over it. I didn't want to be in the army anymore. I started wishing that I died overseas. It got so repetitive and it went on for so long and I thought there was nothing wrong and and the, t- until I started hating myself and I was like, I just wished that I was the lefers before I joined the army. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, there's, there's some things and out of respect, I didn't want to mention everything that went on overseas, but... Just the way that things went, I, in my brain, I built this thing that I, I felt I felt guilty for it, and I hated myself, like hated myself because I didn't do anything about it for years, years. Like I, I returned and I transferred from engineer to electrician. And I was like, maybe that'll be what I need. I need to get out of what job I was doing and go do a trade. So I did that and I got accepted. I got married um, in that time when I returned and I tried to fix what was going on in my brain by just continuing to do what I was doing external things external things and just pushing along with the career and Mm. thinking that would fix it but Mm. it it didn't fix it Mm. and I was I'd just get worse I was locking myself in the bathroom I was getting very angry a lot a lot a lot of anger um, not wanting to face reality just doing what I had to do bare minimum and then it wasn't until I moved to Sydney uh and things started getting worse. I kept going. I kept thinking this. And my wife at the time, who's now my ex, sorry, she wanted me to go see someone. And I didn't want to go see someone because I felt it was weak to go. I, I felt like because I physically didn't get hurt, I was not warranted enough to mm. be suffering to have these thoughts. And I just sat on it. I reckon I... What was it? Three years I sat on it. 
I was so worried about the army finding out. I was so worried about other people finding out. Finding out, out about what? That I, was, that I wanted to get help. Mm. I wanted to seek help. Mm. Um, so I went out on my own limb and started seeing a psychologist twice a week at the start and then once a week. That made me go through my story, which was extremely emotional. I was, because I was seeking treatment, which they do exposure treatment as well, it was, and then I was going home and going to work without anyone knowing. It was making the situation worse. So me trying to hide it from everyone in the army was making it worse because mm. I just had to continue. And I remember going out bush and um, we were just doing a bush exercise down in Sydney uh, with all the trades. And I was walking near a cliff and I just, I wanted to jump. Yeah, I want. I wanted to jump. I wanted to kill myself, and I was starting to think of ways how to do it. I could see this was not good, obviously. Um, and I was like, "Fuck! I need to do something." Like, I had a good mate in there, and I spoke to him, and he was like, "Okay, we need to do something." And pretty much, they told a few people. They pulled me out of the bush exercise and they basically, then they knew I had to tell them everything. And I was in such a bad way, um, the marriage um, just fell apart as well. Uh, so I was in Sydney with my two dogs and um, my ex had moved out temporarily uh, and this had all just happened and um, pretty much because of my suicidal wanting to do to take to commit suicide they wanted to put me in a in a home or whatever and i was like fuck can't do that Mm. i oh shit (laughs) they they allowed me um leave to to go back home sunshine coast and i pretty much just dropped everything took my dogs and went to the sunshine coast um because if i was living with someone I didn't have to go in to be watched. Be watched, yeah. Yeah, so I did that, which was good that they had that option. I pretty much just left everything. I left the furniture, left the job. I was just gone. I had one year left in my trade, and it just it didn't matter to me. It was like life and death decision, and I had to, I had to make a change. It was, uh, I feel like as humans, we never make changes until we get... Fucking rock bottom. Pushed to that. We get pushed to the edge. Breaking point, And yeah. then we make the change, and mm. I feel like that's what happened. And for me, I'd tried psychologists. I'd been psychiatrist. I just had these... Because maybe because I left it for so long, I was so deep in these thoughts. I was like, I need to get out of here. And I was like, I think I just need to, I need to leave. I need to leave the army. And, yeah, I made that decision when I was on the Sunshine Coast and... That's when I linked back up with all you guys. I I feel like I'd broken away. I'd lost, I'd lost who I was, the pillars who made me, who you guys knew. I felt like I didn't want to show myself, or I just wanted to be my old self, and I didn't feel like that at all. So yeah, and then moved back, and um, I still had some. 
really dark days when I moved back and was still thinking about how I could take my own life and I made a promise to my dogs <laughs> I was like if they're here I won't do anything because yeah Dogs are fucking good, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. One one kept their promise. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Do Do you think? Obviously, it's it's what you it's what you experienced and the person that you are and how it affected you. Do you think about the fact that you were forced to accept the reality of death to do your job over there, and were you? able to switch that off as soon as you came home no no i um, did that contribute to no when i came back i was like what's what's this that everyone always talks about you come back from overseas and you was it you gotta civilize yourself again or something and mm. it, for years i would look at people because part of my job was to be very visual observant sorry i had to observe everything the ground the environment around me. The attention the to detail. The attention to detail. Mm. Mm. It took me years to stop looking at people like that, especially when I was in a shopping centre. And it 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 just, it would cause me to f- hate going in big public places. Um, it was a weird experience, which I, I've gotten much better with. I still get a bit overwhelmed sometimes when it's a big... Large groups and stuff. Yeah, yeah. like... Shopping centres are fucking worse. Like, mm. But I don't, I don't assess things anymore. Like yeah. I was assessing it. It took years. I feel like I, I trained for it for years. It then took years to to untrain, to untrain. untrain. Yeah, which I think is part of is part of it. Something that you haven't touched on, but I think it's important is that you and your your ex were also um, going through IVF. You're yeah trying to have kids. Yeah. So. And that, yeah, and that was a that's a battle on its own, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a slippery slope. Which um, I pretty much came back. We'd been tr- we got married and we we're trying for kids, and nothing was happening. So I did a sperm test, and it came back saying I wouldn't be able to have kids naturally. I still had little kickers in there, but yeah, we'd have to do IVF. Mm. So I did IVF and did it for years. A lot of money, a lot of stress, and I think when they're very optimistic when you start IVF, they always it's it's like they they fill you with hope, and I now relate it to gambling, like in in a way that's how it makes you feel. That's that's I feel like it's the same mechanisms that make you come back. You you invest all your time, all your money, all your energy especially for the, the female, has a lot of things they have to go through during the IVF process where the male just fucking does his load in a cup and job done. When the, but the female goes through an awful lot, the drugs as well, and it's very draining and you put all you want is this kid and um, you, everything you've saved for, you put into that, you get the results, negative. Okay, my whole fucking life's about making this happen, it has been, mm. let's go again. And you go again, and you're sort of just hoping for that big jackpot. That's that's why I think it's so it can be a huge mental drain if you're not ready for it because of the possibility of it being long term, like years, to try and conceive, mm. and it, it can be a massive pull on relationships and people. It's 
it's really hard and I don't think it's spoken about a lot. Um, and I and I do believe it it has that same same feeling of gambling. And after years of that and not having any success, absolutely none, I'd accepted. By the time uh, my ex and I broken up and divorced, I'd accepted that I wouldn't have kids. I was it, it was hard for me to accept. And then plus also before that, I had to go through the journey of finding out that I didn't have the basic ability of an animal as a male to produce kids without assistance. That was a big thing to get over when I was only, what, 22, 23. That developed a lot of insecurities insecurities. in yourself. Yeah, Yeah, I I just, I joined the army to become, to make myself a man Mm. and and to make something of myself, set myself up and keep going and I just fucking... It's it's such a stressful thing to go through uh, just by itself, but having the weight of... I guess PTSD as you as you came back and dealing through all that, mm. it's just um, unimaginable what the, yeah. the mental space that you would have been in. Yeah, it wasn't good. It wasn't a good few years. Yeah, um, I think I can look back on it and go, "No fucking wonder I lost it." And I, I guess being young, I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know what to do, and I didn't know what I needed until mm. I hit rock bottom. Mm. And then I made big changes. Yeah. I'm thankful that I'm out of it. Mm. Um, I'm not completely out of it. I still struggle with things here and there. and um, But nowhere near as bad mm. as I was. Um, and I'm not suicidal at mm. all. So Yeah, so when you, um, so you, you got the divorce and then you moved back to the sunny coast. And I, th- I remember you were staying with your mum. And I was, I was living by myself. And I was like, come... Come yeah. move in with me. Yeah. And I just broken my leg <laughs> playing footy. Yeah. So I, I, was in a, I was in a moon boot for three months and pretty much couldn't play any, any rugby for a year almost. Yeah, it was pretty much a year. And I said I was in a pretty shit mental space too. And I, and I was like, why don't you just come move in with me and we can just be in a shit mental health space together. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't think I've ever told you this, but that year I think it was almost two years it was almost two years that we lived with each other and it was uh, I look back on it now and it was hands down one of the one of the funnest and funniest yeah. years of my life yeah, it, and really it's did. and it's weird to look at because we were both struggling in our own ways and we were both sort of like leaning on each other a bit and we didn't talk too much but I think just the presence of being around each other and just having the ability to take the piss out of each other and, yeah. and laugh. Yeah. Yeah, it, I look back on it now and I, it, I felt like it went so quickly yeah. and it was the, one of the funnest times. Um, and I, I know that it really helped me put in a, get, get in a better headspace. Yeah. Oh, it was massive. Yeah. I, I feel the same. Yeah. <laughs> Takes two to the baby. Yeah, yeah. It was <laughs> yeah. playing Kelly Slater Pro Surfing. Yeah. <laughs> All hours. <laughs> nothing else. <laughs> nothing else. <laughs> um, no, yeah, that was... That was so good. And you got, I was, I was the heaviest I'd ever been. I was drinking. Um, so when I moved back, I was drinking six to 10 beers a night. I was, I, you would say I was an alcoholic and uh, I was just trying to numb the feeling. And I, I went from like 77 kilos up to like 87. And you got me going to the gym as well. And mm. I just, it just changed my outlook. 
it, it's yeah. what I needed. Yeah. I'd lost, that's what I was talking about before, I lost those pillars. Mm. You helped me bring it back. And mm. just that environment and then working on myself as simple as just going to the gym five mm. days a week, mm. you know, and starting to feel better about yourself and starting to see a change and um, just completely disconnecting from what I'd done for eight years. So, yeah. So uh, did you turn to the to the bottle? I uh, Yeah, I was drinking a lot. A lot, yeah. Yeah. I was drinking too much. And I love a beer, but mm. that was unhealthy yeah. drinking. Yeah, I just I, I just wasn't doing anything. I just was suicidal and I just... Yeah, it's just a repeat thing every day, every day. Mm. And I I guess I just... I, did, I, I felt like... I, did, I was like, I'm never going to love again. I, f- I fucked up in the head, like... I'm yeah, I remember, I remember we having those conversations. Yeah, um, I can't have kids. Mm. Like, I don't even have... I don't even have the drive to live. Like mm. I've got no hope. Mm. Part of my recovery was I had to change what I wanted out of life. And it, it was hard. Mm. I still don't think I had it. I'm very fortunate now as we, we're talking. But um, I, wasn't, I wasn't completely able to change what I'd always desired. I'd always wanted to be a dad and I wanted to be a dad at a young age. And that might have been because my father passed away when I was young. And I don't mm. know. I just saw worth in it. Is there still lifelong effects from your time in the army? Yeah, not as bad, but I'm very scared of slipping into a bad headspace and I I really try and do everything I can to not allow that to happen. Mm. Even leading up to this podcast has made me re-go through a lot of emotions and retell the story, which I haven't done in years. Um and that that was hard for me, and often I often feel like I've lost a lot of resilience. Like my walls are very low. Like I I, I feel like I can't take much before I start slipping into a headspace, which I believe could be a slippery slope. And um, yeah, just, yeah. It's it's strange you say that because I think you're one of the most resilient people that I've ever met, from all the things that you've gone through, and for you to say that. You don't think you're very resilient? I don't think anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, appreciate that. But, I, yeah, I do think I used to be resilient. And that was a double-edged sword, I think, because I thought I could do everything is why I didn't seek help for so long mm. or try and make a change or ignore it because I thought I could just get through it. I'm just very careful now, I yeah. think. I like yeah. to juggle my work and um, not overwork myself and... Try and spend time with my family and yeah, it seems like you're very with my friends. Yeah, you're very cautious of yeah. of your mental health space and what you need to do to to yeah. stay in it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, do you regret your time in the army? Are you someone that regrets? I did. You did. I fucking hated it. Yeah. I wish I never joined. Um, Still, no, no, no. I th- I believe everything I've done, everything I've been through, shapes me to who I've been to uh, to who I am now and. I think I learn more about myself every time I come across a hard situation and I just, I don't know, I'm just maturing. I've just learned a lot. Mm. I've been through a lot mentally and I know how to process things now and even when I help my partner with things and, and whatnot and I just sort of notice that, yeah, okay, maybe I have learned quite a bit and there is a positive sign once you get through the bad you 
the positive is that you can help other people and you can even help yourself yeah and you understand yeah, yeah. it's nice yeah, someone's in a hole <laughs> you jump in there with them because <laughs> you know how to get out do you feel like when you move back to the sunshine coast and did you feel like you were lost in what direction you wanted to go in in life or did you feel like a fresh start and you could do anything that you wanted to do no career wise yeah career wise life wise did it did, uh, you, did you see the doors or did you life were, yeah were you in a headspace that you're thinking uh, what am I going to do well initially I was Still fucking yeah. bad, but um, yeah. Then I, I started to see the light in in my life change, mm. and I could see that I made the right decision. Mm. I felt like I the decision to drop everything that I'd worked for, and to come out, and it it was the right decision to move back to the coast and yeah. reconnect with those pillars that yeah. were, is what I felt like I lost. And, and how old were you when you came back? Twenty seven. Twenty eight. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and I just I just started doing again what I did prior to joining the army and um, hanging out with all my friends and yeah. whatnot. And yeah, because I I noticed a um, a huge change in you when you met a girl called Wit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was that was good timing. That was I I as I said I I never really dropped the fact that I. I believed I couldn't have kids and um, I believe I couldn't love again. And then I met Wit and, yeah, that was that was a game changer. It was, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was. So I, I felt like at the time I, I wasn't doing much. I was treading water. Mm. You asked me just before about if I saw the light with life or career. Career, I didn't. And it, uh, over time it started to affect me. Mm. And wit came into my life and, yeah, it was the exact thing I needed and she's the absolute best and it just, it completed me and then we've had an absolute unreal few years now. Yeah, it's it's funny because I never thought that I would meet someone as unique and um, weird in a good way as you. And then I met Wit. Yeah. <laughs> and normally you're saying little weird jokes. And some of us are like, yeah, good one, left. <laughs> but when you two are together, you said something weird. And then she'll come back and say something weirder than you. Yeah. And I'm looking at Wit going, fuck. <laughs> What's going, What's on, going on here? <laughs> um, yeah. I, I love that. And did you have those two insecurities, I guess, from your past relationship? The fear of not being able to have kids and... I guess not being the man that you sort of wanted to be. Yeah. Um, and not wanting to love again. Yeah. How did that affect your new relationship with Wit? Um, fuck, she broke down those walls pretty quick, eh? I did think she? I, yeah. yeah, I think I brought it up with a second date. Oh, that's how much, I guess you could say, oh, insecurities. <laughs> I didn't want to bait someone in that I liked if that was a journey that they weren't wanting to go on. Yeah, and I yeah. didn't want to go on the IVF journey again mm. because I knew the toll that it took. So I think second date, I just, yeah. <laughs> I, just, I, I was like, uh, can't have kids. I can't have kids. And she's just like, uh, uh, okay. What is she, 21? And she was, yeah, she's 21. <laughs> and she's just like, oh, um, that's fine, that's fine. And she just was... An absolute 
blessing. Like yeah. I, just, I can't explain it. And yeah. like I was like, what? No, no, no. You don't understand. (laughs) I was like, how can you say that? And then it was just like an unconditional love. Mm. And we just started hanging out heaps and heaps. And we had had a wild first date. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. What did you do? You got a karaoke? Yeah. No, not karaoke. I don't sing, mate. We went... I picked her up. And I picked her up. And I saw her car at the front. It said 98 on the number plates. And I was like... I got out of the car. I was like, are they your number plates? Didn't even say hello. And she's like, huh? I'm like, are they your number plates? She's like, yeah. I'm like, are you born in 98? She's like, oh, maybe. When are you born? I was like, nah. 88. Nah. I was like, fuck. I was like, what's going on here? I was like, I'm born in 1990. And she's like, because we met through friends of friends who are and. Who are your age? Yeah. yeah our age. Yeah, yeah, our age. Or maybe even like one or two years younger. Yeah. And she's like, I thought you were 27, 26. I was like, I thought you were 27, 26. And she's like, how old are you? I'm like, 30 this year? <laughs> and then she's like, I'm 21 this year. I'm yeah. like, holy fuck. Yeah. And where'd you guys go? Like, very mature for age. Mm. We went to Sneaky Baron. Yeah, had a few drinks. And then we ended up. Getting having a few too many, we sort of decided to leave the cars there. We went over to Soul Bar, and then I ended up eating a pizza off some dude's table. Then he left there, and we just thought it was, I was fucked up. <laughs> and we had more drinks, and we danced, and then I was like, "Oh, let's not finish it there." It was a Sunday, so we got jumped in a cab and went to O'Malley's and Moore Bar, and then yeah, ended up having like a big night, mm. going till like one o'clock in the morning, and then yeah, the rest is history. Yeah, yeah. it yeah. seems like. From the very beginning, you were able to be very vulnerable with her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so was she. So yeah. uh, I think that was an important part of building a relationship. And I'd learned a lot from previous from my previous relationship, my marriage. Yeah, I, there was some key things which I, I took into the new relationships, which I think are still key. And um, that's... I wanted to... I believe that you want to try and keep your individual self because that's the person they fell in love with that's the person you fall in love with so i want to encourage you to keep doing those things that you do before mm. i met you because that's who that's what makes you you yeah um and that's something i lost not due to my ex or anything but i lost that and i've spoken about that i completely lost that throughout the years i lost who i was mm. and that was very important to me and yeah yeah and then um you fast forward a couple of years. Yeah. A couple of years. Um, and then you had the unexpected surprise of finding out that Whitney's pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. And what was your initial reaction to that? <laughs> initial reaction? <laughs> yeah. We're in Yarraman, so it's a teacher. And she came in at like six o'clock and I was sleeping in. She woke me up and she's like, look at this, look at this, and showed me the pregnancy test. And I was like, What's that? And she's like, "It's look at it." I'm like, "I am looking." And she's like, "It's positive or whatever." Like, I'm pregnant. And I was like, "Ah, it's fucking broken." And rolled over and went back to sleep. I was full denial. I I can't have kids. That's how my mindset was. And um, and then I'm laying in bed going, "Huh? What just happened?" And I'm like, oh, "I just go back to bed." And then I can hear wet rings like one of her best mates. And I was like, "Huh? She's full quit on this." So I was like, what? So I woke up and started getting like 
my heart going and the whole experience, like the whole day and then the months following was so surreal. Mm-hmm. Like, um, Could you believe it? Like, No, nah. could not believe Until it. Until? I was very worried. Like they talk about the 12 weeks, your yeah. safe part and yeah, you yeah. all these scans and stuff. So mm-hmm. I I was reserving, you know, a part, a part of me just in case it was too good to be true. Yeah, you... You weren't that hopeful. There's a part of you that were going. I was like, someone's someone's going to be up. Something goes wrong. Mm. Mm. Um, So yeah, but the just telling family and friends, and it was it was unreal. Up until that moment, you spoke about your insecurities of not being able to have kids. Up and up until that moment, and when you found out we was pregnant, did those all insecurities leave you? That hang on a second, I'm able to. Yeah, well, I have children. Yeah, I actually had a. um, I did another test a few years ago, and it came back, and it was actually pretty good. Mm. Um, And the doctor said I could have could conceive naturally, but I didn't believe her. Mm. Uh, I went through so many IVF things and didn't even have a snag. So Mm. Um, it did stick with me that I I wasn't too sure for like if I could still have kids. I was I was wigging out a bit, Mm. but I, I. I think I just got engulfed in the situation and it just, it was a life-changing, mind-changing thing. I can't explain it. It was just, yeah. Mm. It was crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> I just, it, I believed so strongly that I couldn't have kids. Yeah. And, and what sort of struggles did you two face? Because I know you both accepted that kids maybe wasn't a, a part of you guys' future and then all of a sudden she's pregnant. Yeah. Like, was it, yeah. what do we do? Yeah, well, we were living out west. Yeah, yeah. We was teaching, and it was like, Rock, what do we do? And then, um, so we moved back to the coast, and then we, that was Wit's first year of teaching. So she was keen to get going on a, um, start a career off, and, you know, start making some money after putting herself through uni and working jobs and paying rent and not having much help. So it was... She did very well, and then she's finally making money where she can buy things for herself, and mm. she's about to be leaped back out of it. So mm. it was it was very hard, and she felt like she was too young, ideally. Like, we had spoken about having kids a few years later, but, like, you, you don't turn your back on a blessing. So, mm. but we were both still very happy, and, yeah, it mm. was... There was, it was a big life changer. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and what have you learned about each other since becoming parents? Anything new? Um, or just reinforce what you already know about each other? A lot of a lot of reinforcing. Yeah. You get put in a lot more stressful situations, mm. but um, I respect her and mm. love her a whole lot more. Mm. Like watching her be a mum and she's such a good mum and mm. it's, yeah. Is, is there a, sec- a secret to you guys' relationship? Don't go to sleep with a resentment. Mm. It's no good. Mm. Talk things through, I reckon. Patience. Uh, and comes back to that keeping your individualism. Like, yeah. Yeah. If, if we Sticking wants, to your pillars. Sticking yeah. to your pillars. If yeah. Wick wants to do something, it's harder now with a kid, but I've got to enable her to be able to do that. Yeah. And she shouldn't ask me. Yeah. If she wants to do something, she does it. Yeah. You gotta keep those pillars there. You um at your wedding mm. 
uh, when you were 21. Mm. You did a really beautiful speech to your mum. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And in that speech, you just thanked her for always, um, always being present in your life and always being there for not only the, the big moments, but f- for all the little moments that she was there with, with you and being a single parent with you and Alex. And you, you just thanked her so much for always being there for her. And what you put it down to was having that unconditional love that you have for your children. We, we didn't have kids. I still don't have kids, but we didn't ha- you didn't have kids then. So yeah. you can appreciate it and you can, be, you can be really grateful for it. But unless you have kids yourself, I don't think you quite understand that un- unconditional love. Yeah. Now that you ha- are a father to a little baby girl called Benny, yeah. do you now understand that unconditional love that yeah. y- you were speaking to your mum about? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, my mum is such a brilliant mum. She did so well raising us kids and giving us the best opportunities that she could and she's influenced me and that's, that's pushed onto me, I believe. And I've learnt so much from her and... It's shaped me to who I am, and mm. yeah, mm. Like, yeah, I can, I can definitely understand it. Like yeah. I, I feel like my life revolves around um, the family now. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I want to, I can't wait for sporting events. And, yeah, and and it's yeah. from my point of view, it's really beautiful to see because I know for so long you've wanted to be a dad, and and since I've known you, I knew you would be a great dad, and it was really hard to see you go through that period in your life um when you moved back in with me and and I was really worried about um you and and your future and I was just hoping that um the ending would be like something like this yeah and every time I come over and I I see you and Wit and little Benny there I'm just like oh I'm it really it really makes me happy to see you and your little family and um yeah I'm just really proud of you yeah, um, thanks, mate. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> During as long as I've known you, you've you've never ever played the victim role. You've never wanted sympathy. You never wanted special treatment. Um, why is that? Um, I don't know. I th- maybe maybe the way I was brought up, but um, I was. I think I was quite resilient mm. when I was younger and I probably still am in a way and um, I believe that people can help you and people and relationships are great assets but at the end of the day the person that has to make that meaningful change is you not anyone else people can help you and their tools and it's no one else's fault about how your life plays out Mm. and no one no one else is more invested in your life than yourself so you've got to make those changes, and yeah, I think that's that's I've been through that, and I've had to make those decisions. Yeah, so. what are you passionate about? Passionate, and we we spoke about yeah, this the other day, and I'll let you answer it. But the oh, <coughs> we're talking about what Lefis is passionate about, and so often I think we correlate passion and job. Yeah, that you've got to do a job that you're passionate about, and if you if you aren't you know, your life's not there. You don't have a passion. You don't have a passion. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and for years, I've thought like that. Yeah. For years. That, and a lot of people think that, oh, I've got to find a job. And it's great. If you've got a job that you're passionate about, awesome. Yeah. 
And then you gave an answer. Yeah. And what, what's, what are you passionate about? I'm passionate about friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's real corny saying. But I genuinely think I am. I, I have learnt the value of good relationships and friends and how important they are in your life and how much they play a role in who you are. And <clears throat> even watching your friends achieve things, it's, and then you helping them, and it's very rewarding and it takes time and effort like any other relationship and you put the time and effort in and it returns it to you and it it um makes your life mm. it, it, it yeah. adds value to your life yeah. a lot of value i think and yeah. i think i learned <coughs> when i i didn't not be friends with you guys but i just i was i moved away and it mm. was hard to keep contact and rekindling that like nothing ever happened was evidence to me that how important friends are. Mm. They enhance every situation that you can be in. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, Career-wise, yeah. Uh, home life, not so much, no. Mm. Um, Career-wise as in relating back to your father and... Yeah, I, yeah. I, this is where I often look back at my father. So mm. I, often, I often feel lost on what I want to do mm. and I've, wits helped me so much and I've, since leaving the army I've done like programming course, did two years of uni, mm. which I think I mainly just did to prove myself that I could do uni. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I've worked like three different jobs. Um, now I'm doing woodworking, which is really good, but I, I still always just never... Like, I feel like, I don't know. Mm. Yeah. I, I, if I did know, then I wouldn't be in, but you're, in this I think, I think one <laughs> of the, I think a great learning thing from you is that you're still searching. Yeah. I think that's great. That you might find it tomorrow. You might find it in 10 years. My dad, my dad's, um, my dad's 67. Yeah. And I had a chat to him about identity and, and who you are. And dad's like, I'm 67. I'm still finding things out. Yeah. So I think it's a never-ending thing. Yeah, yeah. A nice goal to keep sort of yeah. reaching for. Yeah. Um, your deepest fear. Slipping into a bad headspace. Yeah. Yeah. I mentioned it before. Mm. And yeah, that's, I, th- I think that's my biggest fear. I, even the other week I had a bit of an episode which my partner helped me with. with and I was getting these weird things at work where everything – it feels weird, like speed time would speed up and sounds would really go really fast. Anyway, it was quite weird. It would last five to 15 minutes and I'd just stand there like, fucking. I'd continue working and I'd be like, this is fucking weird. Like, and I've had them before, but I got heaps of them for a few weeks there and I started thinking there's something wrong with my brain and and like I, I started putting things together, high stress, the depression, PTSD that I had and... Uh, then I'll, and then I think about I've had some serious heavy serious concussions when I was younger, mm. and then I had epilepsy, and then I'm like I'm looking up this thing and it sounds like I got Alice in Wonderland syndrome, and I'm like, "Fuck's going on in my brain? Like, am, am I like?" Mm. And I and I have like moments like that where I think something's going on, or, and that's my biggest fear. Um, mm. Not necessarily having something wrong with me, but slipping into a mental state where I I get in. A snowball, yeah, which I can't get myself out of. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, and I take 
that's pretty much why I take Thursdays off. I only work a four-day week, and I spend that day with my daughter, So, which is it's what you good. need. It's what I need. Yeah, yeah. Um, so hopefully the interest rates stop going up <laughs> so I can keep doing that. Um, positive traits. I, I always, always like to, to turn back to some of the real intense, I guess, negative things that have happened to us. I always try to find positive things that have come out of it. Your time in Afghanistan and being in that war zone and, and seeing the locals live in that war zone, did it make you appreciate everything that you've got back home and the yeah. life that you've got back home? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. Um, like, I remember one day we cleared a school and um, these kids and parents were saying, oh, the school's been... The Taliban have put IDs in the school and we want to go back there just to use the soccer fields and we looked down on the soccer fields and I was like oh that's you just think about that's so fucked like Mm. and like they cut off water supply and no medical no help like rape rape of men and like little boys and it's just Mm. it is not a nice situation and we are very lucky yeah um and uh yeah, the soccer field didn't end up having any, anything on it. Yeah. And that day, I mm. sat up there and used to smoke a Cuban cigar <laughs> after, yeah. after my patrols yeah. and I just sat there and watched the kids play in the soccer field. Yeah, yeah. but it makes you, I guess, I guess having a, a family of your own now, I guess it makes you grateful for everything yeah. that you do have. And that's something that I practice is sometimes we get really bogged down on on all the big issues in life and sometimes we overlook um, the little things that we take for granted mm. and and just practicing gratitude and yeah. um, it really has a huge effect on me. What do you think is important for people to know about your journey? I don't think it's not over <laughs> um, but as I feel like I hit pretty rock bottom, I feel like there may have could have been a little bit more rock bottom but mm. it, I was pretty close mm. um, and looking back on it, I've learnt that I can learn. You can learn so much from everything you go through. Mm. And sometimes it's as simple as returning, remembering when you were happy and just recreating that life around yourself. Um, and that's what I did. And And then now I'm able to see things in a better perspective and a better headspace and I'm able to use those down times to my advantage and mm. now I've learnt so much from it. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Love it. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this but I've got a closing tradition of the show okay. where I don't ask the last question. I oh. get a close friend, a family member, a loved one to send in a question for the guest. Um, so I've got three of the most um, important women in your life. First up is your mum, Di. And I, th- I think we've obviously touched on it, but I don't know if you want to elaborate a any, any bit more. But your mum's question to you was, how did the death of your father affect you at the time and how has it affected you since? I think at the time was more physical things. Like if they believed that was the thing that caused the childhood epilepsy. Mm. But... I would say now it's more about when I'm lost, uh, have a lack of identity of myself, is when I wish 
that he was present. Yeah. And, yeah. Your older sister, Alex, she asked, where do you draw your strength from in the tough times? My loved ones, yep. 100%. I make promises to myself and I draw off them. So my sister being one, and she, she helped me through some tough times massively, even when she was having tough times with two kids and her own and other family issues going on. So, yeah. Yeah, look in the yeah. mirror, sis. <laughs> so you probably guess who this last one's from. This is from Whitney, your partner. She wrote in fatherhood. You lost your father. You wanted about the father that he was. You lost your faith in children. You wanted what sort of father you could have been. Now you're a father yourself. One day, painfully, our kids may be left without you. What do you hope to give them through the gift of fatherhood? What mark do you want to leave on their memories of their father? I ask you this because having you as a father is simply the greatest gift our kids will ever receive. My promise to you is, as their mother, is to always push you to be a father you long for or to be. And with that promise, I hope to never let you experience another day wondering. Fatherhood, it's yours. I want to be the father that is always there. Always encouraging what they want to do and just allowing my daughter to be who she is and and her knowing that I'll always be there for her and I'll always support her in whatever she does. Mitchell Leffers? Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Elliot. I appreciate it. It was nice. Yeah, well, yeah. It was was good. It was good? I was was very nervous. Yeah. um, No, you did well. I'm very proud of you. Yeah, I did get a bit emotional. When? No, no, no. There's no tissues, Danny. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Thank you, Elliot.